Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Hey, Alan, do you think you could beat Bruce Lee? I don't know. What if he wasn't allowed to kick and you were really mad? Hmm. Perhaps. Perhaps. (laughs) Today we are discussing Unbreakable. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan, and uh, once again, probably the, this is more, I guess, more of a sleeper hit for, or, uh, yeah, a sleeper hit for uh, M. Night Shyamalan. This one is definitely one of his better ones, but also not very many people talk about this one as much as they do, like, The Sixth Sense. Right. This one seems to have a bit more of a cult following, and cult followings usually develop many years after it's been released and we'll talk about how this movie was received at the time of its release but yeah this is Shyamalan's fourth film it's his follow-up to the sixth sense which means it would have been on a lot of people's agenda probably to see because the sixth sense was so huge so listeners if you haven't heard our review for the sixth sense yet go back and watch that and we also did review his previous two films as well and as I promised I did review Stuart Little. I did a a written review. So that is in the link to the Sixth Sense podcast. So go over and head on over there. Um, Also, while you're at it, that review is up on Letterboxd. So go ahead and follow me on Letterboxd. And you can see all of the new movies that I watch throughout the week. And you can hear my thoughts on them as well. But this, yeah, the Sixth Sense uh, came out in 99, right? Well, Unbreakable was a quick turnaround. Came out November twenty second, two thousand. Right, I remember uh, reading somewhere that he M Night Shyamalan had kind of this idea of Unbreakable. I think it came to him right when he was shooting The Sixth Sense. So, yes. was yeah, it wasn't too long after The Sixth Sense wrapped that he began production on uh, Unbreakable here. Well, Alan, have you seen Unbreakable before this recording? I have. Uh, um, I think this was actually my very first Shyamalan movie I'd ever really watched. I remember oh, wow. I watched it for the first time in high school, and I believe it was for like uh, English class or something. I forget what the reason was as to why we were watching it, but this, I remember di- I did watch this in school, in high school, who knows when that was, but that was my first introduction to it. I think I watched it one or two more times after that. Um, trying to remember when that was. I think one of them was when I was in college. So this is not my first time seeing this movie. This is probably my third or fourth time coming back to it and watching it again. And there are still, I don't, I'll mention these scenes, but there are still scenes that I remember, uh, I remember seeing every single time. I'm just like, oh yeah, this scene, I remember this scene. And they always kind of stick with me. I'll mention those, but yeah, this would be my, yeah, third or fourth time probably coming back to this, this movie. My very first Shyamalan, uh, I had ever watched. Oh, wow. I I didn't know this was your first Shyamalan. This was not my first Shyamalan discounting Stuart Little. Um, I, like I mentioned in the previous podcast, sort of the sixth sense. And I'm like, dang, am I Shyamalan is so scary. I don't know if I can watch any of his other stuff. But we did have some neighbors who were big fans of the movie Signs. They even gave me a poster of the movie so they they have a theater room in their basement 
and they said, hey, you know, this was during the summer. They said, why don't you come over and watch it, you know, before you go back to school? Let's watch Signs. And so I was pretty excited to see Signs. So I guess if memory serves, Signs would be like my actual full length experience. I didn't come to Unbreakable. I had seen um, a few more of his movies that we have yet to review. I've I've seen those before I saw Unbreakable. And if I'm not mistaken, Praying with Anger and Wide Awake have been my newest experiences, but Unbreakable has been also a more recent one as well, because you and I actually watched Split together February 10th, 2018. And then six days later, I rented Unbreakable. So the first time I saw Unbreakable was February 16th, 2018 and i'm coming back to it about a little over a year later so just for this review right and i i suppose my first technically Shyamalan movie would have been Stuart little but that <laughs> isn't exactly one that he directed yeah um because i watched that a bunch when i was a kid but yeah the, in terms of Shyamalan the director this would be my first it is kind of funny because uh actually pretty recently my I think we were traveling somewhere and my mom was watching a movie, I think maybe off of Netflix or something. And she said that she wanted to watch this other movie called, uh, I think it was like, uh, oh gosh, what was it called? Now I got to look it up because it has a very similar title to Unbreakable. Oh. I think it's like Unbroken. <laughs> yeah. So she was trying to watch a movie called Unbroken. Well, oh, okay. she accidentally came across Unbreakable oh. and she was a little bit confused at first. Because this was not the movie that she had seen before, because she had seen Un- Unbroken before. That's and funny. then I was like, Mom, I think you're watching Unbreakable. She goes, what is it about? I'm just like, oh, it's a... And I kind of told her what it was about, and she goes, oh, all right. And then she continued to watch it. And I think she ended up liking it, which oh, was wow. it was just kind of funny, because that's totally not a movie my mom would ever watch, that, uh, at least not on purpose. That does surprise me. I didn't expect that. That's funny. Yeah, this... I knew this was a movie a lot of people had seen. I had always kind of heard about it. And the poster was always famous. I had no idea what it was about until last year, pretty much. So I was very new coming to this. But it was... I've got a running list of movies everyone has seen but me. And this one was on it. So, yeah, and I, I know I have a pretty similar list somewhere, or at least it's in my head. Right. I know it's very extensive. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, Shyamalan's like, hey, I want to make a superhero movie next. While filming The Sixth Sense, so he approached Bruce Willis. He's like, hey, you want to be in my next movie, like, right after this one? And Willis was like, sure, sounds cool. So they didn't – Samuel Jackson, the part was written for him, but he didn't really know of anything about it. But apparently – Willis and Jackson ran into each other at a casino in Casablanca, which sounds mm-hmm. unbelievable. Sounds like it's straight out of the movie. Right. And he told him, he's like, hey, Shyamalan has a script for us. And Jackson was like, sounds cool. So Shyamalan did show the script to Disney because Disney, as we know, kind of missed the boat a bit with the sixth sense they did still profit off of it but he's like hey see how successful i am you want the script huh you want it okay five million dollars for the script and another five million for me to direct it huh. 
Disney was like, okay, sure, no problem. So Disney did buy the script. Of course, they did not release it under Disney. As usual, they always release their more edgier things under Touchstone. Which right. I don't even know if it's still around anymore. Um, so I don't, yeah, that's a good question. I, it may have been dissolved because you never really see them around anymore. Right. So, yeah, who knows what happened to him? I don't know. But uh, Julianne Moore was originally cast as Audrey, who would be Willis's character's wife. That really surprised me. But she did drop out to play uh, play Clarice Starling in Ridley Scott's Hannibal, which Alan and I did review. You can go listen ah, yes. to our review. Maybe holds the record for our shortest review. Um, you can find- I guess, yeah, I guess you're correct. That is probably our shortest one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, listeners, go find out why. Go find out why our review of Hannibal is our shortest review. Well, in my opinion, oops, Julianne Moore chose wrong. She made the wrong choice. Um, but go listen and you'll find out why. Regardless, I personally feel Robin Wright Penn was a better choice for the character of Audrey. So, Talk Fujimoto did not come back to do the uh, uh, sequel. Well, it's not the sequel. I mean, Shyamalan's follow-up. Uh, we got the cinematographer Eduardo Serra, who uh, purposely framed scenes in this movie to simulate the look of a comic book. A lot of kind That's of right. flat scenes with... It appears there's depth, but it he does an amazing job of making everything kind of feel everything in the background feel in the forefront and uh he did did a pretty good job at that um oh yeah yeah this is, in in my opinion this may be getting into a little bit of spoilers uh-oh. but uh i think at least not really spoilers but like showing my hand a bit too early here mm. i think this movie is in terms of its cinematography looks better than the sixth sense they both look very good but i think this one for me is more visually pleasing mm. Yeah. Than the six senses in terms of cinematography. Yes, this the visuals of this one are, are incredibly well done, especially when it yeah. combined with lighting and a consistent color palette. It's oh, it's yeah. very solid. Uh, I don't know. I just thought I would mention this piece of trivia. It seemed very odd to me, but apparently uh, Sam Jackson's wig was patterned after the hairstyle of Frederick Douglass. For those of you who are kind of like, hey, who's Frederick Douglass? He was uh, he was a freed slave, or he bought his freedom or something. He's an abolitionist and an outspoken anti-slavery guy. He wrote some books, pretty important in the movement to end slavery. So, I mean, yeah, I guess if you look up a picture, their hair looks similar, but just like yeah. what? Okay, <laughs> that is it's interesting. Little... I wonder what yeah, I wonder what uh, what someone was one was thinking about. Pulling something like that off of uh, off of a well known historical figure, which just seems weird, considering the movie that we got. Yeah, but hey, whatever. It's, it's a little weird. Also, I guess I forgot to mention. I did find it interesting that um, Robin Wright Penn. If you have ever heard of the actor Sean Penn, well, that's because they were married for a number of years, which I always forget about. Oh, okay. Because they're not married anymore, and she just goes by Robin right. Wright. And if I'm not mistaken, um, Alan, you've seen The Princess Bride, right? It has been years since I've seen that movie. I 
Hmm. I actually may not have seen it all the way through, oh. and if I have, I don't remember much. Because every time the I've watched it or I tried to watch it two other times recently, and I've fallen and I've fallen asleep both times. Oh my gosh! Not because I thought it was boring, but because I was super extra tired when I tried to watch <laughs> it with whoever I was with. Oh. So I remember pieces, but I need to watch it again all the way through. Yeah, you do because that movie's amazing. Anyways, that's what I've been yeah. Told. Well, you know, Princess Buttercup is. Uh, Robin Wright, she's uh, Willis's wife yeah. here. Audrey, same same lady, just different hairstyles. Well, I don't even think right. she was Robin Wright pin back then. I could be wrong, but she to me she's just always been Robert Robin Wright. So it's a little weird when I see Robin Wright pin, and now she's not anymore. Thank goodness, right. Sean Penn is a nut. Right. But <laughs> yeah, I don't keep track of all the who's married to who in the acting industry. It's too confusing because it changes so it quick. It's changes by the day. It's yeah, it changes so quick. It's just kind of ridiculous to keep track of. So, well, Shyamalan got a pretty good sized budget, seventy five million, and of course, oh, yeah. it paid off. Domestically, it really didn't do all that amazing. Actually, it domestically it grossed ninety five million. So it just made, right. it got a $20 million profit, which is really nothing to write home about. Yeah, especially with a budget that big. I mean, at least it did make its money back, so it wasn't a complete flop, oh, no. but it wasn't anything incredible right. either. No, nothing like The Sixth Sense, which was doing, uh, I think domestically, it was well over $200 million. In foreign, right. like three hundred. I mean, it, and it had like a worldwide gross of close to seven hundred million. So, but these this movie didn't do near those numbers. Foreign markets one hundred fifty three million for a worldwide gross of two hundred forty eight million, which, like I said, was what it grossed. What the six cents grossed domestically. So this movie, yeah, financially, it did it did well because with a budget of seventy five yeah. million and a worldwide total of two hundred forty eight million. Yes, bravo, good job. But yeah, it, it's a little surprising. Usually when somebody has a smash hit, I call this the Rambo syndrome. When something has a smash hit, the sequel, like First Blood Part 2, will do much better. Yeah. And will do gangbusters at the box office. Right. Right. Yeah, it is interesting that uh, it wasn't super popular here in the States. I mean, to a certain extent it was. But it's that worldwide market that ate it up, which now we all kind of now a bunch of the uh, movie making industries are all kinds of obsessed about China because that's <laughs> where our big deal of money right. comes from. But yeah, they definitely with the worldwide market, it pushed it way over uh, double, triple its budget, which is good for the movie. But yeah, here in the States did reasonably well, but not the numbers you would want to strive for. And opening weekend, it wasn't number one. It was number two, actually, with $30 million. It was beat out by Ron Howard slash Jim Carrey's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, was, which was in its ah. second week. And, of course, that movie was going to do better, especially because they released Unbreakable kind of, kind of towards the uh, Christmas season. Or even th or even Thanksgiving, ah. I guess, would be, would be closer. So... I don't know, kind of an yeah. interesting time to release it, but the top five was Grinch, Unbreakable, 102 Dalmatians, 
Rugrats in Paris the movie was number four at the box office. And finally, Charlie's huh. Angels. That's an interesting uh, interesting list yeah. that we have here. That is weird that they decided to release Unbreakable uh, around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it would have been better suited some other time. But hey, that may not have been possible for all we know. Yeah, to but, me- yeah. Yeah, it's weird that The Grinch was the movie that beat it yeah, out. That's a little unexpected. I think this movie would probably yeah. serve better in early fall would be where I where I paid. Dude. Yeah, um, I can see that. So of the trilogy, so listeners, if you don't know, this is actually Shyamalan's one and only trilogy for now. Unbreakable, Split, and Glass. Of the trilogy, when you adjust for inflation, this is the highest grossing of the three. And of Shyamalan's films, it's his fourth highest grossing film. So his best days are yet to come at the box office anyway. And um, this is a superhero movie. If some of you didn't know that, we'll get into exactly how it is. But as far as superhero movies go, it's quite low. It's ranked 73 Box office wise, and for superhero origins, it's thirty four. So, no, of course, yeah, yeah. It this we'll talk about what exactly is inside the movie, but it's it takes a much different take on superheroes yeah. that really even superhero movies now don't really strive for this kind of a style, uh, especially with Marvel mm-hmm. and DC. It's it's a very different type of superhero movie, just kind of in general. On IMDb, it has a pretty solid rating of 7.3. That's honestly, that just seems a, a little bit low to me, considering how much how many how many people love this movie. Uh, it is a cult classic, so I'm sure that has something to do with it. But it just seems a bit low than what I was expecting out of a movie called Unbreakable that <laughs> has a lot of love. Yeah, behind it. 7.3. Yeah, it's fine. But as far as critics go. Critics gave it 70% of critics recommended it. And today, audiences give it 77% recommendation. So you can see that's kind of in line with IMDb. For the most part, by Rotten Tomato standards, that is a solid recommendation. Right. Yeah, it's not necessarily a fresh tomato, but it's close. It's it's a a well-done tomato, but... Definitely isn't rotten, because I think I I believe the certified fresh is like seventy five percent and above. I don't remember. Um, I want to say it's close, some somewhere around those numbers. So it's it's close to being rotten, but it's also close to being fresh. I guess it's ripe. Right. It is just ripe. Yeah, it's a ripe it's a ripe tomato. Well, I was pretty surprised to find this little bit of information out back in the day. Audiences thought this movie stunk. I mean, audiences thought it stunk. They gave it a really bad rating of a C on CinemaScore. Oof. Interesting. I wonder what that was all about. Well, as you can see, though, from the ratings above, its view has greatly improved. Now, 7.3, 70%, those aren't numbers to write home about, but... Nevertheless, if you're going to make some kind of correspondence between CinemaScore and IMDb, if you're going to give something a C, that should probably be more so in the low sixes, I would say. I mean, what do you think, Alan? Yep. 
I could see it. Uh, I mean, we've kind of mentioned this before with CinemaScore. Their ratings are weirdly stacked. So a good movie technically for the audience is pretty much anywhere from, I think I think we defined it as like a B plus or B, right? A normal B right. and up. Anything below that is just kind of considered not great in terms of the CinemaScore audience. So yeah, I'm, I could see a low six uh, being defined yes. as a C here. In the A range, audiences really thought it was great. In the B range, High B's audiences thought it was good. Anything below kind of a high B audiences thought was it was, it was fine. And then anything below that right. audiences really thought just wasn't good. So I'm surprised. Right. I didn't expect audiences at the time to have just been so against this movie. Yeah. I I wonder if... Because uh, around this time, there have been no Spider-Man. I... Don't think the X Men had come out yet. I want to say the very first X Men. It, I think it came out in two thousand one. It um, X Men might have came out in two thousand. It's okay. Yeah, the first one came out in yeah. two thousand. Uh, it released the fourteenth of July. So yeah. I wonder if that has something to do with yeah. it. Um, where the X Men is has a bit more fantasy added oh, into yeah. it than. Unbreakable does because Unbreakable is very much set in realism. So I wonder if maybe it was X Men that kind of caused this, I guess, dislike with the audience. Yeah, it's also very different from The Sixth Sense. So audiences may have been thinking, yeah. hey, we're going to get another kind of supernatural film. I mean, in a way, there's like a bit of supernatural elements. Um, but also from what right. I heard, the marketing campaign at the time was trying to ride the coattails of Sixth Sense and showcase Unbreakable as more so a thriller, whereas it's really uh, not. So, so I'm sure it's actually a culmination of many different things. X-Men and the marketing right. team not really representing the film very well and, and having a really odd tone compared to the Sixth Sense. I'm sure that's what caused it to not necessarily be in the public's uh, favoring favoring eye here. I think so. Well, we are going to discuss it right now. We are going to get into spoiler territory for Unbreakable. So if you haven't seen Unbreakable and you don't want it to be spoiled for you, you want to go in spoiler free, go ahead and click pause right now. Go watch it. Come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis, is your average guy. He's got a wife and a son. He works as a security guard at a football stadium. Oh, and he's the sole survivor of a massive train crash. On top of that, his life is falling apart. He's leaving his wife, Audrey, played by Robin Wright Penn, and his son, played by Spencer Treat Clark, to hopefully take a job in New York, which is quite the distance from where they live in Philadelphia. Although, after the train crash... His wife and son begin to reconsider how much they really do care about him, and he does likewise. Surprisingly, a third party is taking interest in David as well, a Mr. Elijah Price, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who runs Limited Edition, a comic book art gallery. He believes David to be none other than a superhero, considering he's never been sick, can bench press 350 pounds, which is way over what he should be able to do, 
and he walked away from a fatal car crash with not a scratch on him and a fatal train crash. Believing Elijah to be insane, he leaves hoping never to see him again. Except Elijah keeps popping up in David's life and eventually Audrey's life when he must see her for physical therapy after breaking numerous bones. See, Elijah has a rare genetic disorder causing massive fragility with his bones. Unsurprisingly, the kids at school when he was a child gave him the nickname Mr. Glass. More and more, David begins to reevaluate re his life circumstances. By all means, David shouldn't be walking, let alone living, after all he's gone through. But nevertheless, he's healthy as a horse and has incredible intuition as to what people are hiding. Taking Elijah, aka Mr. Glass, up on his prompt to test his extra sense of peering into people's true natures and then doing something about it, he literally stumbles upon a maintenance worker at a train station who is a psychotic. He has a family bound and tortured in their home with their father murdered. David follows him to the home and successfully defeats him, while preserving his identity. Only does he let his son in on the secret. Later, David meets up with Mr. Glass at his art exposition, where they shake hands, finally as friends. Except when David shakes Glass's hand, He's presented with, a, with horrible flashes of glass planting incendiary devices on planes, trains, and in hotels, revealing Philadelphia's greatest tragedies have all been his doing. Mr. Glass did so in order to flush out a hero, his antitype. If there is someone completely unbreakable, the opposite of Glass's fragility, then he must serve a purpose, that of the supervillain. Deeply saddened by this startling revelation, David turns Glass into the authorities where he is locked away in an asylum for the criminally insane as credits roll. And I should mention, we don't see him get locked away. Like, every superhero movie pretty much ends with the bad guy, like, they show him being locked away. But this one takes, once again, right. more realistic approach. We'll talk about whether that realistic approach really works or not. But yeah, yeah, for the most part, a superhero type origin story that's more so completely just grounded in reality. Yeah, they for the like I think you got it right. They for the most part they grounded in reality. There are some kind of very mild supernatural elements to it. Uh Miss now Mr. Glass's or Elijah's condition is a real thing. Now, on the opposite side, I don't think that uh, Bruce Willis's or David Dunn's condition where he pretty much can't die is not necessarily as much of a thing uh, as uh, Elijah's condition. I don't think so. But there are, it's, 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 they do it, they play off in a way where, like, you know, it's not necessarily real, but it does end up working for the movie for the most part. There are a couple of things that we'll probably get into a bit later that I don't think work all that well, but. For the most part, in my opinion, I think that the realistic elements that they have here uh, definitely work for what they're going for. Yeah, the film questions, what if there is some average Joe among us who has never realized yeah. his potential? He's just forgotten about past circumstances or excused them or his brain has kind of covered them up or changed them in such a way as right. to rationalize them. So in that sense... It is, it's interesting, but the movie doesn't open yeah. up with 
our protagonist, David, well, wait, does it? No, it does. No, it opens up with uh, that's right. Elijah as when he's yes. being born. So that was really... Which is all kinds of it, interesting because you never really start... You know, you don't usually start off with the villain right away. Yeah. Which at the time, you don't really know that he's and, a villain. Yeah, yeah, without us even realizing it, this is also a villain's origin story as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting that they start off uh, even on opposite ends because when Elijah is born... There's a doctor or maybe a man who is, I guess, in training. It, I, I suppose doctor. he's a doctor. They yeah. don't really explicitly say if he is, but he, he comes in and, and holds the baby and says, you need to get this baby into a, a hospital right away. He has, he has fractures on his arms and legs. Cut to Bruce Willis on the train, and then not long after talking with the lady, there's a train wreck, and he comes out unscathed. So already we have this divide between these two characters before we really get into the story of uh, one is very fragile and one pretty much can't be killed aside from what we find out later is his weakness as water. Yes, it's a good dichotomy that we're introduced to here. Now, it's a little odd. The opening shot is an overlay of comic book statistics. Uh, yeah, It really doesn't do anything to serve the purpose of the story except to just, I guess, make the audience realize how uh, big comic books are, I guess, to, yeah. to people. And I'm sure those numbers have definitely inflated since this movie's been released, so I can guarantee you these statistics are way out of date. It, yeah, it'd be interesting to know the yeah. statistic nowadays, but the film does begin in 1961, like Alan said, with the very fragile, broken baby um, whose mom calls him Elijah. She has him in a department store. Which seemed really odd, right? For some reason, but I do gotta say, I love the opening um, shot. We are actually watching everything through a mirror, right? And that seems to become a trope with at least Elijah's early life. We always mm -hmm. see him in some kind of reflection for most of the time. And this scene, opening with this scene, is a reflection of for the, for most of the scene, which does go on for a quite a long time in terms of not really cutting. Um, we see it through most of it through a reflection in the glass. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of taking it as, and it does kind of help reiterate this later on when we come back to these flashbacks that Elijah's life and his mom isn't exactly in, I guess the uh, more profitable side of, uh, of society here. They're kind of on the lower end of the uh, social uh, socioeconomic pole here. Mm -hmm. Which is would be explained to me why they were in the back of a department store, but at the same time, we also get this uh, this visual which we don't know don't really realize until much later that the baby or Elijah is ex is an extremely fragile person. And usually, when you look into a reflection, uh, you're you typically that's a symbol symbolic representation of a person looking at. Uh, the opposite of themselves if they're staring into a mirror and looking inwardly, which is, we will come to find out, we will find later is uh, David Dunn, who does have a, the complete opposite condition that he has. So here in this opening, it kind of presents this idea. And then later on, when his mom says, I have a present for you outside, when he when he's looking through the TV, um, you definitely get this idea that he's searching for something. His his search beginning here with the as a kid. What if there's somebody different or the opposite of of who I am? Which I think is very interesting to really focus a lot of time on a villain like this. 
it is surprising and i was kind of debating with this i'm thinking this is almost just as much as of elijah's story as it is david's story and i'm like right. in fact and that's why i was actually a little confused because the new movie that just came out this year glass is well clearly focused on elijah Right. But we do have so much focus on him, and even starting the movie with him makes me think, is this Elijah's movie more so? I'm like, why aren't we getting more so um, a Bruce Willis-centered movie? But right. we are, they just, they do kind of give almost equal screen time. I won't say it's completely equal, because I do think Willis's screen time wins out in the end, but it's close. We do get to understand Glass pretty well. Yeah. And I would say it makes sense to focus on David more because uh, while it is kind of in the realm of only being, or not really only being, but it is kind of in the realm of this is Elijah's story. It's Elijah's pursuit of finding his, finding his opposite self, which is David. Yeah. So it would just make kind of sense storytelling wise to focus a lot of time on David than we would on Elijah. Yeah, I know M. Night Shyamalan gave a quote during this movie, kind of this ying yang um yeah star wars the force you know there's the there's the light side there's the dark side good and evil can't exist without one another which is not true right. um but nevertheless that's clearly what Shyamalan is going for in this movie is if there's evil then there has to be good which is true right but evil is not um necessary Right. And um, it does. it is interesting that we open with a completely broken baby, which calls into question the title Unbreakable. And I'm thinking, right. well, certainly not this baby yeah. is not unbreakable, but it does get yeah, you. Almost immediately there's a, there's a disconnect between the title and what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it does just fade into the opening credits. And I do love the the theme for this movie that James Newton Howard scored. Yeah, James Newton Howard, I think I mentioned this in the previous Sixth Sense podcast. Great composer. Really enjoy his stuff. And uh, both of these movies have really shown off how good of a composer he is. Because I don't think there's really any track in any of these movies uh, that he's composed so far that really don't work. And don't do anything aside from really help the movie out. Oh, I, I definitely agree. But yeah. when we do get to Bruce Willis's character, um, the way he is initially filmed, it's so good. It's just so interesting where this camera yeah. just kind of like pans back and forth between the seats. Like it's a little kid um, watching oh, him. Yeah. yeah. We're definitely taking on the, the, the eyes of a child here with this scene. Right. And, mm -hmm. Taking on the eyes of a child for the first time we see Willis is interesting because children are often associated with um, loving superheroes. It's mostly children who do love superheroes. And when they first see superheroes, they're always in awe and superheroes is just kind of a paragon of integrity and righteousness. Well, he's not. He is clearly right. wanting to be uh, unfaithful to his wife. And he's a little creepy with how he's flirting with this lady and staring at her weird stomach tattoo. And so you, you get the sense like this guy has a lot of character flaws. He is not uh, what, what I would think of as a hero uh, to his family. And especially considering Elijah comes from a single parent household. And it seems right. like Willis is about to repeat that process with his family. 
Yeah, it's very interesting that this movie begins with two kind of opposite characters, uh, at least of what you would expect from a hero and villain. It seems like the movie's almost already betraying itself before it has even really began, which is very, very interesting to me in my mind, uh, just the way that they present these characters. Not only is Bruce Willis unfaithful, but he has plenty of character flaws. You can tell just by the way he talks and the way that he's moving and the way the camera lingers on him taking off his ring that his marriage isn't exactly in a state where is, I guess you could say, uh, acceptable. It's not necessarily uh, in the best state it could be. Uh, there is definitely some hurt between them. And they have, and we haven't even seen the wife yet. Uh, and you do kind of get this idea that maybe he has a wife and a kid at home seeing this whole scene through the eyes of a child, which, is on, which at the same time is a pretty long opening uh, introductory scene for our, char- for our main character. I don't think it... It doesn't cut for a long time. I think it's a good maybe three or four minutes of the these two characters going back and forth and it kind of showing these two characters to the seat to the separation in the seats in front of them. Yeah, it shows he's not really any example worthy of imitation. Right. But then we're presumed there's some kind of incident with how everything goes wide and everybody knows something is wrong. And then we cut to his son. We don't know it's his son at first, but his son who's named um, Joseph. And it's interesting to note that Shyamalan seems to have a propensity to um, making children um, kind of stars in the movie. They do play prominent roles. Right. Clearly, I think Haley Joel Osment um, has a bigger role in this than – um, Spencer yeah. Treat Clark, but it's interesting. They both have three names. That is true. Um, and I did, I did all, I did want to jump into uh, Spencer Treat Clark's history just for a minute because it is interesting. Haley Joel Osment was quite the star around that time, like I said, and Spencer Treat Clark was as well. He would also come out that year in a little little movie called a uh, Gladiator. Uh, which have you even which, heard of it? Yeah, it's not many people heard of that uh that best picture winner. <laughs> that was yeah, a huge yeah. movie, but he did play um fairly prominent part in Gladiator and um 3 years later he would star in another Oscar winning film including best picture nominee Mystic River. And uh, okay. which stars Robin Wright Penn's husband. So, connection there. Huh. Gotcha. But nevertheless, gotcha. yeah, these there's kind of these like really famous child stars that really didn't do anything with their career. I mean, they're both acting today, but just not in really uh, big roles. But judging by – let's yeah. – jumping back to the ch- train crash, judging by it, everybody is dead. That kind of train crash, you got to be dead. Yeah, everyone except for two people, which ends up just being one, uh, after we see David wake up in the hospital – it's a, actually a really cool scene having the last guy alive kind of mm. die right in front of David. Yeah. It does kind of bring in the question of what were they thinking, but whatever. Um, <laughs> it is a cool shot to see how the doctor comes in and talks to him and says, yeah, there are only two survivors, you and that man over there, but that man isn't going to last very long. And we see it, it was, and we see him like kind of struggling, these two doctors are already working on this guy in, uh, in the foreground that's out of focus. And then it is kind of interesting too because – the camera begins to pull, begins to push inward towards Bruce Willis and the doctor. So it pulls our focus away from this man who's already dying and into our, into a Marine character, Bruce Willis, which I think is just very, very interesting 
once again, vi- by a visual standpoint. Yes, this is one of the first shots that we get that that does make it feel like a comic book where um, everything is yeah. kind of squared, just like a panel on a comic book would be squared, and everything is kind of right. centered in the frame in order to draw our eyes first to David, but then we realize what is going on in the foreground of the scene. So it's interesting we're able to interact with both of them. A comic book would more so... It, a comic book may be framed like this, but a comic book is able to kind of cut back and forth between these two things. But it's kind of like giving us two panels in one. We get the panel yeah. in the foreground and the panel in the background. So I do right. love the shot right here. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is a very, very good shot. Right. It's just a very good scene in general that they mm-hmm. have here. Yes. Uh, yeah, this is one of the things that when I was watching it again, I was like, oh, crap. Like I was, I remember being pulled in because it's, it's very, it's very well done. The way that they pull this off is extremely well done, uh, to convey a lot of, a lot of different information because you do find out later that it, it is kind of hard for Bruce Willis to just kind of die like that. Um, and even here how he was like the only survivor on the train and had no scratches on him at all. Uh, you do, it is kind of bringing, starting this idea that this man might be the opposite of what we were seeing earlier. There tend to be a lot of contrasts in this in this movie, which makes sense because a lot of uh, superhero comics always have, and they kind of mentioned this, they have varying contrasts where it's pretty much just good versus evil. Uh, the two direct contrasts as far as opposites as you can get coming together and fighting each other. Something that I think is really fascinating is the color palette in this movie is just kind of almost a lot of grays, a lot of muted yeah. colors, which seems to designate... In real life, if there were really superheroes, there is a lot of gray areas as to their their viewpoints and even mm-hmm. their personal lives, how they came to be. So the only real contrast we get is, like you were saying, is David is more so in green, which kind of is his superhero color, and right. Mr. Glass is in purple, which did kind of make me think of the Joker, especially Jack Nicholson's. Right. Um, version which came out 11 years prior. So clearly having a purple color like that, a cane, these gloves, even his hair, he does kind of kind of cut a menacing figure or at least something kind of foreboding or imposing. Right. Yeah. Um, there is definitely some kind of uh, some foreboding emotions that are being presented whenever he puts on the purple suit. We do kind of when it's, with his introductory scene where he kicks the guy out of his uh, art gallery because he's going to give uh, this piece to his kid, his four-year-old kid named Jeb. It kind of uh, begins, because we at this point, we it's, it's pretty obvious that this is the character of Elijah, just grown up now. But it is interesting that we do get to see, I guess, his more evil side, more, more or less, of him. But for the most part, and really for... All of the movie aside from maybe the ending, he doesn't he doesn't really come off as like an evil guy, just a man nope. looking for somebody who's the opposite of him because that's what he feels his life calling is right now, is to find that opposite person to who he is. Which is interesting. I guess I probably should also bring up a little bit of color theory here in terms of the two characters, because you mentioned that uh, David Dunn's character is, especially when he's doing superhero-y things, he's dressed in green, mm-hmm. which usually represents self-growth. Yes. And then you've also got purple, which is what Mr. Glass usually t- typically wears. And that 
tends to represent uh, royal royalty and certain things like that. Now, a lot of purple could also begin to represent sadness, and a darker purple can also represent the same thing. But there seems to be like a neutral purple. It's more of royalty. He does sell very expensive art, uh, comic book art, I guess you could say. So yeah, he, he I guess it would go was more go to explain that uh, he's been searching his whole life for this, has built up, I guess, this kind of empire to him as an art gallery. And then now he is fi- trying to find who is his exact opposite. It's his whole, that's what his whole life has kind of been leading up to, he feels. Yes, and when the two do meet at limited edition, uh, we get some kind of uh, interesting scenes. Um, I mean, I guess before that, we do have another flashback to West Philadelphia 1974, where Elijah is 13 years old, and he's afraid of getting his you know, body broken again, and the kids at school call him Mr. Glass. It's not cool to do something like that, but... I mean, that nickname is a little cool sounding. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Got to admit, it of, all the, of all the names. But anyways, um, I do really like this scene as well, not just for its technical aspects, but giving us kind of that incentive along the road. It's a little interesting to see that Elijah is in some ways kind of this um, anti-savior, almost this antichrist, because he was born with just this mom, you know, which could possibly evoke the Virgin Mary. Jesus was born in a stable. He was born in the back of a department store. Right. He, we also only have an account of when Jesus was, I don't know, roughly around the age of 13. We get that of um, Glass here as well, uh, except he is... He's not a really um he's not really a wise kid. Like Jesus could have been considered kind of this prominent child. He's more so one that wants to go hide. And right. um this is where he kind of realizes his potential growing up is, you know, I'm not really a savior of the world. I could be kind of the evil figure of this world. Um so I do kind of see there is kind of this sort of antichrist parallel here that I, yeah. I think kind of works really in an interesting way. Yeah. And I would even go as far as to say that the names, especially for the main, main characters here, are pulled from, I would say, they, they seem to insinuate some biblical representation, like Elijah as a prophet in the Old Testament. David, yes. I mean, that could be a couple of things like David the Archangel or David and Goliath or whatever. Joseph yeah. is definitely a biblical name. So, now, I don't think that they necessarily connect with their biblical counterparts, but they are biblical names, and I don't think that was a mistake. Yeah, in more of an archetypal fashion, they connect yeah, yeah. fairly well because David, Jesus was of the line of David, and Jesus was essentially the perfect human in a way, and right. David is supposed to be that, so we can kind of see David as kind of of that lineage, at least in an archetype form. And yeah, Elijah, like you said, was a prophet of the Old Testament. Also, the compound name Eli, Eli means God. So he is, we see the potential. And I think that's what's really fascinating is, I the first time I saw this, I never suspected he was going to be 
this psychotic mass murderer. Right. I never suspected it. But upon second viewing, all of the breadcrumbs are there. If you rewatch it, you can tell, okay, well, they're kind of actually setting him up to be the opposite, the villain of this movie. That's kind of obvious, actually. But nevertheless, we I believe he does have the potential for good throughout this whole movie until the very end. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And typical, at least so far in uh, Shyamalan fashion with his twists, they're not out of nowhere. The whole movie kind of builds up to him. Now, I think that the Sixth Sense twist is definitely a better one. Mm -hmm. But don't get me wrong. I think that this also, even though it is a twist uh, that could come out of nowhere, it isn't one. They do play up this idea from the very beginning that uh, he was the one who kind of isn't all sane as we may have expected from, at least from his introduction as an adult. So, and I, I like the fact that he, it's, it doesn't just stem from him, oh, I just want to find the opposite of me. It stems from essentially his birth, from when he was born until the moment he's at the very end when he's apprehended by the police. He's kind of been developing this idea of, can I find somebody who is the opposite of me, which does especially kickstart when his mom gives him the comic. And it, essentially from then on, his entire life, has been devoted to finding the opposite of who he really is. When you think about it, it's really sad that he kind of resigns himself to this fate of, you know, if I'm kind of this no good, worthless guy, you know, there's nothing I can do except be broken all the time, then there's got to be somebody who's a hero, you know, a man of steel that can do all of these things. So he's like, okay, from now on, I'm just going to be a supervillain. So he just grows up to devise ways of causing horrible disasters, you know, right. just causing un, uncount, untold thousands of lives to be lost, all in, his pers- all in his very selfish pursuit of vindicating his own beliefs or thoughts about his, his re- the reason for his condition in life. Right. And it's also interesting, too, because without Elijah, David may have never realized... Uh, I guess what his true calling in life is. He never would have realized the condition that he has, which is he's unbreakable. It's interesting that it's Elijah's fault that he is the one who kind of sits on this track of, I guess, becoming this hero in the very end. Now, one of the flaws that I do have with this movie is when they do start to encounter each other and Elijah causes David to question his past I just can't believe they have. David has never realized he's been sick in his life, yeah. and even his wife is like, "You know what? I never thought about that. You've never been sick. Are Are you kidding me?" Right, right. I could maybe make the uh, excuse that you would just kind of get used to it after a while, but that's not much of an excuse. Yeah, it is. Uh, I guess a logical flaw. That he would just never have noticed himself getting sick, never would have known what it means to be, uh, to be, I guess, in bed or even with the cold, aside from, I guess, one time when he had pneumonia because he almost drowned, which we find out later is his weakness. So, yeah, I think it would be rather strange. And realistically, him being in bed with pneumonia may have killed him. If it, I mean, I think I mentioned that, but it probably should have killed him because there would be like no immune system to that kind of a thing. Aside from that though, um, 
it is interesting that they just never noticed until Elijah puts the note on his windshield that he's never been sick. It is, I mean, at that point, you are kind of uh, asking for a lot there. Yeah, you're asking for a lot. And also, just a series of events. They said he nearly drowned when he was a child. He was in a car wreck, and now a plane, or not a plane, a train crash. He just doesn't really ever think anything of it. He just goes on with his life. Really? After all those events? Right. Yeah, it just, at least with the car wreck, it would would seem like, oh, he's super, super lucky to not have a scratch (laughs) on him. Like, to uh, to a considerable degree, that's very strange, but... Yeah, I, it is the train wreck that really causes this whole mess to begin. Now, to be fair, I think what Shyamalan is going for is uh, definitely this man trying to find, I guess, purpose in his life. He is a middle-aged man, as we can probably clearly clearly see here. So I would go on the fence to say that his at the moment we see that the uh, the moment this movie begins. David Dunn is under some kind of midlife crisis because his family is kind of falling apart. He's definitely separated from his wife while still living, while still living in the same household. He's kind of trying to connect with the son, but it isn't really working out too well. He is even highly considering moving to just just moving to New York to live by himself for a job there just to kind of get away from everything and maybe even start start everything all over again. So he's kind of in this like bad area of his life and this whole movie is him realizing uh what it means to be a true hero or what it really means to what it means to have some kind of purpose in your life because th- that seems to be a running theme here is uh self-purpose or finding some kind of uh i guess some self-realization here so i would say that's what he was going for and that would be what causes some of these logical errors to come up is him trying to keep this allegory here alive yeah that makes sense i can understand that he kind of is coming to terms with everything that has gone through with him yeah. uh, the one scene that i don't think works is when he's at he's at a school because his son was fighting and the lady is like oh you know we still tell stories about you to keep the kids away from the pool or whatever and it's just a slow zoom of him like pretty much starting to cry and yeah. just realize i guess that yeah he he has gone through all of this stuff i just don't think the emotion was there like it just felt so forced because i just caught myself like wait why is he crying and why are we getting the slow zoom like it's some crazy sixth sense revelation okay at least it is setting up that he does have a weakness and at first he thinks that's proof that i don't have this power that you think i do when he's talking to glass yeah but we do kind of find, kind of find out later that he does still have this power. It's just that water is his weakness. Without, I guess, with being submerged underwater is what could cause him to die, which is how he gets pneumonia and then almost drowned that day. But yeah, the emotion is, I guess, kind of missing here in this one scene. Yeah. Uh, although it it does make sense a bit later on as to why it even exists in the first place. But yeah. One of the other things I think is an incredible stretch is when they're talking with Elijah and he says comics are a way of passing on history like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs and he's got a big tablet of one behind him like really why um no 
no, they're they're not the same yeah, at all. It, honestly, it's definitely a visual thing, right? I I guess so, but yeah, that that one's just kind of ridiculous. I found that to be really ridiculous. Now, comic books present archetypes of ancient figures that we kind of can connect throughout world history. But nevertheless, right. this comic books are not a way of passing on history, like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And he's like, oh, well, the original comic books were. Today, they're just all trashy and commercialized, but back then, right. they weren't. Um, no, I don't believe it. That that just seems like Shyamalan trying to be a little too deep than what the movie warrants. <laughs> yeah. it could. One could also chalk it up to uh, the villain not having a, a sane mindset to a lot of things as well. I'll mm-hmm. agree with you. It looks weird from a visual standpoint to just all of a sudden show this giant slab with a bunch <laughs> of hieroglyphics on the back of it. Yeah, It's weird from a visual standpoint, but I can probably get on board in terms of showing... Because usually you have... When you have a protagonist and antagonist, they share a similar goal, if not the same goal. Uh, but they go about it in completely different ways. Uh, typically you would see the antagonist going about it in more of an unethical way, whereas the uh, protagonist would go about it in a sound way, but with plenty of flaws that he must overcome before he eventually realizes how to proceed with this uh, with this belief in a, in, more eth- in a better way or whatever. It, it could be, that's usually what happens in a story like this. Uh, one of the... Yeah, one of the scenes that I do like from this movie that is pretty kind of cringeworthy, actually, not in like a bad way, but in like, wow, that that does hurt to watch it is when Elijah is chasing the guy with the gun um, down the stairs. And when he does fall and his bones do break. And I, I got to say, I love the visual of his glass cane shattering mm-hmm. and then uh, his bones are so hard hitting. That scene really does like make you feel like, ah, oh, yeah, that, that does really hurt, except uh, Sam Jackson's face, the final scene doesn't quite sell the pain. Yeah, yeah def- you definitely get to see, especially now, upfront and personal, how fragile he really is. Because up until this point, it's really only been like after the fact of mm-hmm. his injuries. So at this point, we do get to see how fragile he really is falling down the stairs and how stairs are kind of, I guess, his one of his weaknesses as well. But I love the camera work in here too because the camera is like slowly turns, slowly rotates, yeah. uh, and goes pretty much completely upside down as the man with the camo jacket hops over, uh, hops over, I guess, the terminal, and you get to see the glimpse upside down still of the gun mm-hmm. with the silver handle that he has that uh, David had visualized that he did that he had in his in his belt pocket, and I guess hooked to his belt. So I, I love even from the from a visual and cinematic standpoint how this scene looks. Really, this whole movie looks really great. I think it might be so far the best looking Shyamalan movie that we have with the sixth sense. Yeah. Once again, not very far behind it. No, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. One of probably the most fun, memorable scenes though is testing how much David can bench press. Yeah, uh, I I remember that from the first time I saw it, and it's a really fun scene. It's funny how his son is standing in the background. Like his dad's like, stand back just in case, like just in case you like crush your body or yeah. something yeah. and your like body explodes or something. Right. And he's like, what do you do? Get mom. It's it's just a funny scene. And of yeah. course, the the lines about, do you think you could beat Bruce Lee? 
that is once again Shyamalan's kind of witty writing coming out and I would say in each movie he's done so far there's been something really clever yeah that he's placed in the scene that didn't necessarily need to be there but just enhanced the scene right yeah it, and this is one of the few scenes I do for whatever reason I still remember this scene uh most notably the scene that happens not too long after this I think um it's there are just a, a number of scenes here that for whatever reason have just stuck in my mind since whenever I watched it in high school and I've never really been able to shake it. This is kind of one of those scenes, but later on when the son pulls the gun on the dad and then oh yep, uh, yep. the scene, I think it's at the very end. Uh, uh, yeah, at the very end, the very ending scene is also one that for no, no, it's the wife scene when he walks into I think this actually happens early on. He walks into the closet and pulls out like this uh, folder with all the news clippings in it. Oh, really? And then he has the yeah. conversation with his wife right after that. That whole sequence, for whatever reason, I still remember that sequence almost line mm-hmm. for line for some strange reason. I really I don't know why I like it so much, but from a visual standpoint, it looks really, really good. And then it also helps set up the beginnings of a repair with his wife and their relationship that is one of the other memorable scenes is joseph's experiment of shooting his dad yeah and i remember the first time i saw it i found it to be extremely frightening it almost was horrific i would say and extremely intense um i will say it's not as intense the second time around yeah but I will say it is one of the best uses of a handheld camera I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely do sell the uh the intensity especially with the camera work uh in this scene. It's it's interesting. I th- I want to say that Joseph has uh, some autism in him because I think that they mentioned that <laughs> at one point in the movie. Really? I could be mm, very honestly. wrong about that. But <laughs> That that for whatever reason I was thinking I was wondering if that was be the reason why Joseph ends up pulling the gun and does kind of some uh, I guess dramatic things here. I could be so wrong about that, so don't take my word for it. But anyways, I don't know. I just took it as he just wants to prove to his dad he knows his dad is unbreakable. Oh, yeah. He's invincible. Nothing, if bullets can't stop Superman, so why would they stop his dad? And he's like, this is going to be the ultimate litmus test. Yeah. And it's a little funny, the dialogue in there. He's like, Joseph, if you don't put the gun down, I'm going to abandon you for good. Yeah. And My I'm favorite like, line, it, I don't know if it's that. intentional or not, but the mom does say, uh, friend, she's, the mom says, don't shoot friends, Joseph. Uh, I don't know if that was supposed to be as funny as it was, but it it is kind of hilarious. Yeah, she's probably piggybacking off of what David said because he was like, we're starting to become friends and friends don't shoot each other. And then the mom is like, yeah, yeah, we don't shoot friends. Okay, put the gun down. That was funny. I will say Robin Wright Penn is fairly weak in this scene. She doesn't really sell me on like, I mean, for Pete's sake, if a child's pointing a gun at somebody, you're yeah. gonna have like, you're gonna be extremely like on edge, and she she's just more so like, hey, quit it, yeah, or you're gonna be in trouble. I'm gonna be honest, um, I don't really like Aubrey's character in this story, or at least the actor mm-hmm. that plays here. I don't think she does the best job compared to anybody else here. I think that she, yep. while still does a good job in a few scenes, I think that she's more of the weaker. Uh, actresses that it's in this movie or actors that's in this movie for me. 
She's definitely the weak link as far yeah. as acting goes. No, I mean, I think her character is fine, but the way she's portrayed, she doesn't really sell me right. on anything. The one time that I guess I liked her the most was when she first came up to his room and she was like, you know, I I kind of want to start over again with you. Right. This train crash really put into perspective, you know, our relationship. And if you, I love the line, if you want to ask me out sometime, I'd be okay with that. So yeah. that's the one time I really like her. Otherwise, she's almost a non-factor yeah. in this movie. And she doesn't need to be a big part. Yeah, no, and I would say that her character is absolutely important for this scene. And there are, there are, don't get me wrong, there are scenes where she definitely works. Like the scene when he, when she talks to him in the closet, that scene, I think she really works in there because she asked him, uh, have you been, you know, seeing anybody else? And he says, no. no. And then she begins crying and she kind of lets <laughs> out that maybe we can start over. Like, I really enjoy that scene. I think she does a fair, a really good job there. And the scene maybe a little bit later on when they go on a date, I think she does a good job there too as well. There's a There are a few scenes yes. here where she does very, very well. And I find that there's no way you could have a movie about a man trying to repair his life without a, without her in there somewhere. Uh, so she's absolutely imperative. But I do kind of wish that the actress that portrayed her, I guess portrayed her in a, in a little bit of a different way. Because I, I don't know if it's uh, the way that she acts or what, but it isn't grabbing me in, in other scenes than the ones that I find to be very impactful, like the closet scene or whatever. Yes, I would agree. Now, did you notice uh, Shyamalan's cameo? I did, yes. He is the drug dealer uh, in the mm-hmm. stadium. Yes, you play a stadium drug dealer, and it's pretty funny that... I just wasn't expecting him to be the one David patched down at the stadium. He's like, yeah. hey, sir, what do you got on your person there? And he's like, oh, nothing. What do you want from me, huh? I do enjoy seeing uh, Shyamalan's cameos. It makes me think he's kind of the new Hitchcock, where Hitchcock always had a fun cameo. Never as big of parts, never speaking roles or as big of parts as um, Shyamalan. But nevertheless, it's a fun part in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Hitchcock is more along the lines of you have to really look for him to find him. Shyamalan yeah. is not very hard to spot because he has some kind of acting role uh, in his movies, at least so far, the two that we've had. And he has a main role in his first one. But yeah, he, it's not very hard to try and find Shyamalan as long as you know what he looks like. He is pretty easy to spot because he has speaking lines. So, One of the scenes that seems kind of out of place or just unnecessary, it is a funny scene, but I don't. I don't really know what we're supposed to get out of it is where Elijah is at the comic book store and he's just sitting there and the guy wants to close up and then he starts wheeling him down the aisles and then Elijah will purposely knock himself into there. To me, that just seems like he's, he's like, I've given up hope. I'm just going to go to a comic book shop and be a little destructive and rebellious. It's funny, but I, I don't know. What do we get out of that? Where does it go? To be fair, the scene that happened before this, uh, David says to uh, to Elijah, you know, for like the third time, I think, that he's been told this, just leave my family alone. Right. And even though Elijah tries to call him out for his car wreck saying, you know, you didn't actually get hurt in that car wreck, uh, you faked it or whatever, he decide, David decides not to listen to him. So 
I would say it's more of him giving up on life and he goes to the comic book store maybe to search for some kind of inspiration because originally his inspiration was from the comp- from the comic book he got from his mom. So my guess is he's there at the comic- there at the comic book store more as more to do with him kind of sulking and looking kind of for some pick me up which he does eventually find after running into the stands after the guy tries to kick him out. So that would be why it would make sense for him to be in the comic book store. Although it is a little bit strange that uh, the scene does exist where the guy tries to kick him out and he runs into stands and stuff. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I guess be, I'll just, be too halfway. It, I guess it just felt a little disconnected because he said, I'm going to call the police and I assume he, we never see him call the police. So I just don't really know what happened after that. Um, yeah. I don't know. And I guess I can say the other thing is if the police did pick this guy up and they did like charge him or something, he would be on their records. And right. Eh, well, I'll, I'll wait to save the end for last, like how he's able to get away with all these crimes and not be, you know, not get and get away with it for so long anyways. Right. Right. But, um, we do also, uh, I was a little surprised we got a flashback of David, young David and um, young Audrey uh, with the car wreck. It wasn't right. completely necessary um, to have that for a flashback. But uh, the guy who did play young David, he I thought he looked pretty close to him. The guy's name is... Yeah, I was... That really surprised me how similar he looked to Bruce Willis, but just much younger. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, young David Dunn is played by Davis... Duffield. Hmm. So a little Weird. similar there with their names. Yeah. I wouldn't completely discount this scene because it's kind of now. Well, I'll get to that in a sec, but it has been building up to the fact that, Hey, he has actually gotten hurt before. And this scene was, and this car wreck was one of those times when he actually got hurt. Mm-hmm. But we do find out earlier from, uh, from Elijah that that may not exactly be true. Uh, he may have just done it just so he could stop playing football because we do know that Audrey does not like football at all. Right. Um, and that kind of makes sense because she's a physical therapist. But uh, so there's a car wreck that they get into and it, we come to find out that not only is he unscathed, but he is absolutely super strong because he's able to rip the door off of the of the car, off of the, of, off of the overturned car and save Audrey at the time before they really, before they got married. And that's, what he does to get away from football is uh, through this car wreck. So it's not like it, it, this scene is more of him coming to the realization that uh, he does have these powers for real. And it's been with him his whole life. And even in this scene, which I guess he may have convinced himself that he actually did get injured in reality. He did not get injured. Uh, Now to be fair though, uh, we don't, I don't know if we necessarily need the visual aspect to this scene to i guess get what they're trying to say that you know it has been with him his whole life uh and that really this scene only i guess really only serves his purpose to show as a visual that uh hey uh he has had this his whole life and that he used it when he didn't even know that he had it now to be in a realistic standpoint it could just be the, the adrenaline rushing through him which has been noted to uh for people to be lifting cars although that is very unpopular that this kind of thing happens. 
Well, anyways, but the thing that did throw me off a little bit was the the lady looks nothing like Audrey that he pulls from the car. Yeah. The uh, the younger version, not as close as Bruce Willis's younger version. We do get to the climax here fairly quickly, I would say, where Glass tells him, he's like, basically, go prove yourself. Go looking for someone. Like, trust your, what essentially, spidey senses. And you'll find somebody worthy of you to kind of stop. And right. um, I do like this scene because he's in like a very darkly lit world. But when he does bump into people, he is able to see their illicit activities from the viewpoint of almost a security camera, which makes sense because yeah. he is a security guard. And the evil people do have colors on them such as usually kind of more slimy colors like red and orange and maybe mm -hmm. some more sickly um, tones of that as well. Um, the one that did surprise me the most is, of course, the um, orange suit man who is yeah. kind of this psychotic BTK figure who does literally bind, torture, and kill this family. And once again, Shyamalan does a good job of horrifying me I did certain yeah. elements horrifying in the sixth sense, but this whole climax is something that I won't um, forget either because of just how truly terrifying it is. There's this guy working um, as a just a maintenance man, but he goes home and right. he's this total psychotic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, I you are correct that pretty much anybody who's bad or anybody that... Uh, uh, Bruce Willis can kind of see their illicit activities are have more color to them than everybody else does. Everybody else is pretty muted. They're like browns and maybe some greens in there somewhere. Uh, but once they bump into some, once they bump into a bad person bumps into David, uh, like the girl with the red jacket on, you kind of get this quick image that she's kind of abusive toward her child or uh, M Knight himself as playing the drug dealer was wearing a pretty lighter blue jacket than anybody else was. So yeah, everybody here has a color highlighted color towards them if they're like an, if they're a bad person. Uh, and we do kind of find out that there it is no mistake that Glass is also wearing something other than a muted color. He's wearing purple. And up until the scene when the very end where he does shake his hand and he realizes that he was the one who caused everything, all the bad things, all these terrorist acts that happened. It's kind of been under our nose this whole time uh, that Mr. Glass here is also on that crowd, which also explains why he is wearing a color uh, that is different from pretty much anybody else in the story that's like an extra in the background. I do like it when he does free the family and he does fight off this guy, yeah. and especially because every superhero movie especially every origin story they have to fight some kind of entry level boss if that makes sense yeah. usually the sequels are saved for something bigger and of course that is the case because it does seem like in glass willis will fight james mckay character the beast which is much yeah. bigger super villain you could say but he does but Shyamalan also brings our expectations down from that of a supernatural villain to honestly something much more terrifying. Like I said, this yeah. uh, psychotic home invasion guy. And it's interesting that it's not what you would expect a lot of punching and kicking. He mostly just chokes him out. And so it's not really that yeah. violent, 
of a scene and um, Willis is not really the aggressor per se. Um, now when he does fall into the when he does fall into the pool and the camera is flipping with him and then he sees everything kind of coming around him, I don't really feel a whole lot of intensity or and I don't really feel like that's his kryptonite per se. It's just like, yeah, anybody would kind of drown in a pool like that. That'd be really difficult to get yourself out of, but he is aided by those girls. So that one scene of like, oh, our character, you know, Superman has to deal with the kryptonite at least once during his fight. To me, I didn't really buy that as much. Yeah. And this is kind of, this is kind of defined in the last movie, The Sixth Sense, where the main lead realizes the power that they have, and then they go on to begin using that power in this final scene here. Because in The Sixth Sense, they realized, uh, they he saw one of the ghosts, the ghoulie figures that were in that movie, and then helps her out. And in this scene, uh, or in this movie, Bruce Willis realizes his power and the power that he has and goes and uses it for good to save this family from this burglar who has kind of taken over the home. So, yeah, this is nothing new to Shyamalan. Uh, he kind of defined this in his last movie. Uh, and it also serves to show Bruce Willis not only figuring out his powers but also figuring out how easy he can be taken down, which is he being pushed into the pool. And I don't, maybe pool covers have come a long way, but <laughs> typically pool covers now are latched to the ground. So this wouldn't happen if something fell on top of it. Yeah. I mean, his weakness is water and he's kind of being engulfed by being kind of, yeah, he's being engulfed by not only the mat, but also the mat in conjunction with the water. Luckily he is saved by the kids though. So I, I felt it. Um, I think that it was more to do with the setup of him realizing his powers and having to find a way to execute those powers, but he's still very much an amateur at what he does. I like this scene. It is, once again, kind of typical Shyamalan where the scene that happens that he realizes his powers doesn't, doesn't necessarily have much to... The, the scene, the setting itself does not necessarily have anything to do with the story itself, aside from the hero of the story being the one who realizes their powers and is able to show that they can in fact do what their sole purpose is or find their find their self-worth and this is how they do it this is once again kind of the same thing as sixth sense they're very similar in this aspect something else i do love is he's not just a hero by fighting bad guys but he's also a hero in his own home and i think that showcased nicely yeah. with carrying audrey up the stairs with with no sweat oh, yeah. whatsoever it looks a little awkward how it's filmed, yeah. but nevertheless, it is a neat scene, and she's shocked because, you know, if it's not easy to carry a human being like that, let alone up a flight of stairs, but he does it with such ease, and that shows he's, like, just truly given over to his, his powers as just a protector yeah. and also as a father, so the reconciliation is good, and I've come to appreciate that yeah. with the Shyamalan films we've seen so far. There is some solid reconciliation or redemption of the characters oh, at yeah. the end. Yeah, this movie is more so than Sixth Sense. This movie is heavily under that idea of a man seeking redemption for a life that he, and at the beginning, seems to re seems to resent. So, which makes sense. Like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of like a midlife crisis for this man, and he kind of comes to terms with who he really is. That's really the whole point of the movie: is him coming to terms of who he really is finding out what his true purpose is in life a little bit late than what you would typically expect. But yeah, this scene, although it is look kind of strange, I wonder if they had uh, Audrey 
um, on some kind of rig that didn't they, make her yeah. move around so much. It really does look like that. Uh, <laughs> they definitely did. Yeah. So it, <laughs> but yeah, this scene, this is pretty much the the scene that defines that their relationship and pretty much everything in the household has been resolved. Uh, he's been able yeah. to redeem and reconnect with both his wife and his child at this point. Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. it it definitely does work on, especially a redemption arc. It, this is pretty much the end of his redemption arc. Here is that he's fixed everything with his wife. That was kind of the bigger things between the three of them in the household is repairing that relationship with his wife, which has been a lot of time on. And I I did really like it. Now, of course, we can't wrap up the film without Mister Glass. Ah, yes, where we get this completely startling revelation. That he has been the mass murderer. He's been the terrorist, more or less. Now, were you surprised by this ending when you first saw it, Alan? I think so. It's <laughs> It's been years since I've seen it uh, when, I, when I first watched it. So, I yeah, I think I was surprised by this ending that turns out Elijah Price is the actual villain and he caused all these terrorist acts. Mm-hmm. I want to say yes. I can't exactly give you a definition, a, a clear answer, though. I think it's a great reveal. It's uh, yeah. kind of the icing on the cake, actually. I would have been fine with him not being bad, which makes me kind of sad because I was like, oh, man, they they just became friends. And I kind of liked him. And um, it really does kind of reveal his true nature that was yeah. always lurking underneath and he gives this really good line at the end where he says now that we know who you are now i know who i am i'm not a mistake i should have i should have known because of the kids they called me mr glass which is yeah. just a villain sounding name so a, a really good line but definitely starting and i think the emotion is played just right especially from bruce willis yeah, I like, and I also like this too because it also shows that neither the villain nor the hero are like completely worthless in this world right. because they both and really great stories can do this, uh, especially when it comes to, like a superhero story. Having both the villain and the uh, hero being absolute necessi- absolute necessities to the story for not only in terms of the plot, but also in terms of their own individual characters. Dark Knight does something very similar where they, where the where the Joker and Batman need each other to survive. You need that complete opposite person uh, in, you need that complete opposite person to, I guess, continue to live in this world and utilize yourself purpose here. It's very interesting that they also try and use the same thing here where both characters are not necessarily worthless. They, even if Mr. Glass himself is, can't do too much because of his condition he is ultimately able to find the person that uh is completely opposite of him which is i guess you could say his what he's been trying to do this whole time yeah it does introduce kind of a moral conundrum here of if not for mr glass revealing david's true purpose then we can insinuate david wouldn't have rescued that family and he right. also wouldn't have kept his family apart at home, and everybody would have been worse off for it. Now, so that does introduce, a, like I said, a moral conundrum there. If those yeah. events hadn't happened, and they, Mr. Glass hadn't kind of revealed it to him, but then it still doesn't land. It doesn't necessarily land on the side of that we can excuse Mr. Glass for everything that he's done. Oh yeah, because yeah. Uh, 
Although I do feel it's kind of cheesy and unnecessary giving us this real-life overlay saying, David led the police to limited edition, and now Elijah is confined to a criminally insane asylum. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) That's that that and, it's going for too much realism there. I think. Yeah, and the freeze frame doesn't help at all either. Oh, <laughs> uh, so you know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, it in a real for a realistic uh, point of view, it makes sense that this would happen. That you know, David Dunn t- tells the police and leads the police to Elijah, and then Elijah is put away into an insane asylum. I mean, it makes sense. But yeah, the way that this is also executed is also kind of cheesy, but I do understand they're trying to make it as realistic as possible as if this kind of thing actually happened and that it's more of a, uh, uh, what's the correct term, uh, docudrama-ish kind of mm-hmm. style where it's, it's an event that actually happened, not really, but they play it off as if it's like an actual movie. Yeah. So uh, that's what I, that's what he's going for, I believe. I think it's called no. The term I I just learned this learned this recently. It's called pseudo documentary. Is hmm. kind of what they're going for here, to a certain extent, where it plays itself off as somewhat of a doc of a documentary, where it events this man's life from bad to getting better because of this other man played off as if it was a realistic uh, situation that happened. But this is definitely more of a. Uh, Definitely more of a cinematic story rather than a documentary kind of story. So, yeah. 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 For like films that are based on a true story, we've been accustomed to the trope of seeing pictures of the real life people, learning yeah. a little bit about what they did after the fact of their life, after, well, after the fact of the life we see in the, in the movie. So right. it seems like he's kind of drawing from that trope as well of the true story type trope, which I never got that sense throughout this whole movie. That's why it just kind of feels out of nowhere to introduce this at the end. It is a bit odd. I will agree with you there. Um, I think for what Shaman is going for, where he is trying to keep this superhero story as realistic as possible, I think definitely works. Uh, because it it does kind of lend to this idea that even the most average of people who have not the greatest life like David Dunn, who's just a normal security guard before he realizes that he has these really strong powers that everyone has some kind of purpose in their life. That's ultimately what the message is of this movie is. Yeah. Everyone, no matter where you are or who you are, you have some kind of social purpose uh, in this, in this, in society. That's what, that's what it's trying to say. And that, and keeping that as realistic as you can, well, do it while also introducing some supernatural elements in it. Uh, he tries to get across that message of even the most average of people can lead extraordinary lives. And it also ends on a prominently black and white, you know, statement of right and wrong. David does the right thing by turning him in and glass is justice is served. He crime doesn't pay. He does have to uh, accept the consequences of what he has done. So for that fact, I do appreciate it. Yeah. I would also like to bring up the uh, the fact that his the room that him and David are in mm-hmm. is kind of out in the open. It's pretty easy for pretty much anybody to walk in there. In fact, we do see people walking back and forth throughout through the doorway in a few shots. So it's almost as if this room is not necessarily a big of a secret. And <laughs> if anybody were to come in, they would 
be I'm I would assume pretty shocked by the amount of evidence that's here that Elijah was the one who rigged all of the the three main terrorist acts. Just saying. And the way that I guess I can justify that is the way that I landed on Elijah's position is he absolutely wanted to get caught. He wants the recognition Perhaps, of yeah. the supervillain. He's tired of living his life as this cripple in the shadows that everybody writes off. Now he's the one that can take credit for A, creating a superhero, creating his counterpart, and B, also for all of these supervillain-esque crimes. So I guess that's yeah. the way I can excuse it. It also feels very much like a lair where they kind of have to go down this ramp and into this room where he's got his computers and his right. diagrams and stuff. So I, I think it all plays out um, fairly well. But yeah, those little overlays at the end just uh, they get me every time. Yeah, I don't see. I don't necessarily mind the overlays. It's the freeze frame that got me. The yep. that gets me. <laughs> that gets me too. That just kind of <laughs> yeah, just kind of screams early two thousand cheese. But okay, I will agree with you that he that his whole goal at the very end here is to get caught. He wants that recognition. I can agree with that. Uh, but anyways, yeah. After the title cards and after the freeze frame, that's it. They, his last line from the movie is, "They call me Mister Glass." And yeah. then as David's walking away. It, I do find it to be completely unbelievable that the detectives, nobody's been able to figure out after three major incidents that yeah. um, Glass, he, he's just not a suspect at all on their on the yeah, police report. That. That, I that. was like, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. You've been able to get away with all this so easily. <laughs> so, Alan, what is your writing and recommendation for Unbreakable? I think what makes Unbreakable stand out from most superhero movies, maybe aside from something like The Dark Knight, is that it does try its hardest to stay as realistic as possible while still introducing a few supernatural elements into it. Um, and I don't, there could be multiple reasons why Sean decided to do that. But I, I think that's the reason why I enjoy this movie as much as I do is because he keeps it realistic. It's a lesson that plays on emotions, not just trying to teach the audience a lesson just because, like a lot of what Marvel movies do. There's a lot of emotions in this movie, and I really, really enjoy that part of it because I think he plays them off not only very well, but also is able to teach a lesson through those mo emotions that he casts out from, from these actors. The story of redemption, that any man, no matter where he's at in life, can be pretty much can pretty much be a hero to somebody. It's it's an interesting lesson to show through a realistic standpoint in a superhero movie that it's kind of, I would even go as far as to say it's kind of a sleeper superhero movie because everything that happens is not necessarily over the top. It's keeps itself pretty level-headed. So there are issues. We've mentioned what issues that exist in this movie, but I would definitely say it's one that I'd like to own eventually on Blu-ray. Uh, and I really did enjoy myself watching it again. And I would like to watch it probably some other time. Uh, down the road because I didn't enjoy it that much. So 8 out of 10, uh, pretty solid recommend for me. Unbreakable is a unique follow-up to Shyamalan's smash hit The Sixth Sense. Despite this project being slightly less ambitious in its storytelling, I appreciate Shyamalan wants to differentiate himself from his previous work and continually do something new, despite maintaining relevant themes such as finding one's place and purpose in this world. For all intents and purposes, Unbreakable is a superhero origin story that audiences come to know on a frequent basis. Of all of them, though, this is the most original. I compliment the whole crew and actors for making a solid, solid narrative piece. 
That works so well through cinematography, score, and character development. I actually care about these characters. Also, this is a digestible story. It feels short but hearty, and I really enjoy that because most films aren't able to achieve that. It sports a positive worldview of protecting people even when it's a hard thing to do, and a cautionary aspect of trying to gain our identity from someone else leads to self-destruction. There isn't a lot wrong with this movie, save for certain elements. You have to suspend your, your disbelief in order to accept certain plot points, such as Glass being able to easily get away with so many major crimes, and David incredibly and David's incredibly slow lifelong realization of his superhuman ability. Oh, also he realizes he's never gotten sick. Aside from those things, Unbreakable is a unique film and an even more unique superhero film. Although this follow-up to The Sixth Sense is slightly less good, it stands strong on its own merits. I will be returning to Unbreakable often. It receives eight stars out of ten with a strong recommend. Well, listeners, we are not coming back with Shyamalan. Next week, we are nope. coming back to finish up our Mad Max retrospective series. We'll be coming back with the third entry, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. So if you have missed out on the first two Mad Max uh, podcast reviews, uh, go ahead and check them out in the archives. Make sure to listen to those first before you listen to Beyond Thunderdome. And then the week after that, we will be finishing up with Fury Road. Oh, I'm so excited to finally be getting to Fury Road. Yes, I'm very excited too. It's been a while. It's actually been a while since I've watched it. So it's, been, it's been a while for me too. So that's why I'm intrigued to really come back to it. Also, Alan doesn't know this yet, but he will be coming over to watch the Black and Chrome edition. Oh, I am? Yes, you are. I'm okay with that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I definitely wanted us to make sure to watch George Miller's Black and Chrome edition before uh, we did review the movie, because I, I really want to see what they're able to do with that. I've always been curious about that uh, release of the movie. I've definitely seen it. I've seen stills, but I haven't exactly decided to watch it yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited to see what that's all about. Me too. And once we're done with Fury Road, we will be coming back to Shyamalan for two more reviews signs and the village and then we will jump into our men in black retrospective series all three of them which we will lead up to men in black international i also should mention it's not going to be one of the uh, usual monday releases we will have a special um kind of weekend of release type one of avengers endgame we did review infinity war last year so we did want to review endgame which very possibly will probably be the highest grossing film of all time so i want to make sure we get to review that as well i'm intrigued to see where they go with it it's gonna be and judging from the ticket sales it very well easily could very well be because from what i saw the last time i looked it it had outsold infinity war oh yeah (laughs) and like a bunch of other movies combined in terms of just pre-release ticket sales so we'll see what happens if we can even get in on us on a uh, on a weekend (laughs) Uh, that's true we (laughs) it might not be weekend of release listeners it might be a few days after that maybe midweek of of the following week right but um and i'm not gonna be bringing a drink into that movie it's going to be three hours long I'm e- three hours and two minutes. I'm excited though because how often do you get to go see a three-hour movie in theaters? I'm curious to see what they get, what what all they're gonna pack into this three-hour movie. Because I mean, 
Marvel is usually not one to add a bunch of just nonsense stuff, and they just have some kind of purpose to entertain or whatever. But yeah, I'll be curious to see what all they pack into that three hours. Well, listeners, once again, thank you for joining us. If you like this podcast, go ahead and subscribe first and foremost, and make sure you get your friends and family members to subscribe, share it with them. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. If you never want to miss out on anything that we post, go ahead and follow us through Facebook, Twitter. You can even follow through email on our website. All of those links are in the description below. And if you do really enjoy this podcast and you want to keep the episodes free and you want to just support us for what we're doing, we would really appreciate that. Head on over to our Patreon page where you can buy Q&As. You can do Q&As with us. You can hear our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers. We will have bonus podcasts over there exclusive just for you, even film commentaries. So we have all of that and more, all for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee. You drink the coffee, it's gone. This content is yours to keep, so it's a great value for your money. And like we said, it does help us pay to host this on a server, helps us to pay for the bandwidth and the storage capacity for these episodes. So we really would appreciate your support. And if you can't swing a three bucks Starbucks cup of coffee, then any kind of donation amount is very much appreciated. So Alan, thank you for joining me. Sure thing. We will see you next week with Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Sweet.